the good thing about business these days is that everything is moving so fast that you can kind of stop in your tracks and say, whoa, why are we doing that? My name is Merrill Dubrow, CEO of Mark Research. I'm a 35-year veteran of the research and insights community and the host of our podcast, On The Mark. On The Mark is focusing on executives and thought leaders in the world sharing their insights, strategies, and personal experiences. I promise this podcast will be filled with tough, pointed questions with real, insightful, and emotional answers. Today's guest is my good friend, Diane Hessen, entrepreneur, investor, board member, and columnist. Diane, welcome to the On The Mark podcast. Hey, Meryl, it's great to be here. All right, let's just get right into it. Even before I ask you what you're doing now, something a little bit more important than that. You and I share something that most of my guests, including I've had the first guest was Steve Schlesinger. So he's a diehard Yankee fan and I'm a diehard Red Sox fan. And and I got to tell you something. You and I share that. You may be a bigger Red Sox fan than I am. How did you how did that happen? Oh, gosh. You know, I always loved baseball. I actually grew up in Philadelphia and um, around 1963, 64, it was a absolutely crushing time to be a Phillies fan because uh, for those of you listening who are baseball fans, uh, the Phillies were doing so well that summer and uh, there were 11 games left. We only needed to win one and we lost all of them. And it was great preparation to uh, becoming a Red Sox fan, which was quite a heartbreaking experience uh, until 2004. So I just always loved um, the fact that although on the surface baseball is a team sport, at the end of the day, there's just one individual usually either standing on the pitcher's mound or, you know, standing at home plate with a bat in his hand, you know, and, and everything depends on that person and that combination of team spirit and yet the individual pressure uh, to perform. I always just thought was so dramatic. I also just love going to games. I found friends when I moved up to Boston for school and just kind of got into it. And now I have all of this history. It makes Steve Schlesinger feel better. I'm married to a Yankee fan, which Steve knows. That does not make me feel any better at all, Diane, to know that. That is just, (laughs) let me tell you something, that's fighting words. So fill in the audience on what you're doing now. I mean, you've had a, a, a storied career. You're involved in a lot of things. Just fill us in a little bit on what your days are, are like. Yeah. Well, I have a portfolio life now. That's what I've been told it's called. And I'm essentially operating in three different buckets. The first draws on my market research background and my just love of understanding people in general. So since... Uh, the election of 2016, right after that, I created basically an online panel of voters all over the country. Every state, every age group, every possible segment you can come up with, and essentially all ends of the political spectrum. So I have about 225 Democrats, 225 Republicans, you know, from moderate to extreme on both of those, and then a a bunch of independents. And I've essentially been giving them projects in the way I learned to do this at Communispace 
which is now called C-Space. I've essentially been giving them projects every week uh, since November of 2016 and following these people along. It's been an extraordinary experience. And when I learn something new, I write a column for the Boston Globe. So I've done about 40 op-eds at this point. So that's one. And I'm on the Boston Globe editorial board, which is super fun because who knew that as a business person, I could become a journalist. That's box one. The, the second uh, is boards. Uh, I'm on nine boards. Um, some are for you know large corporations. One is a startup, you know, a bunch of nonprofits, et cetera. That's taking a lot of time. It takes the large proportion of my time outside of what I'm doing with my research, um, particularly now because uh, board there are board calls, you know, every day that I've got going on. Just either companies in crisis or companies with big opportunities, or sometimes both. And then the last bucket is I'm an angel investor, so particularly yep. in Boston, I spend a lot of time with startups, um, investing, uh, mentoring, being a shoulder to cry on, helping them raise money, uh, etc. So it's great. I'm all over the place, very unfocused. It's very unlike being a CEO, but um, every day is a new adventure. All right. So let's talk about that. I mean, I have so many follow-up questions on what you just said, but we're going to go back to a few things about Communispace slash C-Space now. So you started that company way back in, in late 90s. How did you come up with the idea? Because you were the first. Well, you know, it was a combination of, you know, some really brilliant ideas and a tremendous amount of luck. I mean, we, we were, we did have a belief that the internet would change everything about how people could have conversations with each other and how organizations could engage with people. Our first idea was really around building these online communities of employees who could share best practices together. You know, we essentially, uh, partially based on a conversation with a client of ours from Hallmark um, named Tom Brailsford, we essentially settled on a model that said, let's build these online communities less for employees to connect and more for corporations to be able to connect with their consumers. And we were just trying different things out. Um, but I had hired a software engineer who was helping us build this thing. We had profiles. We were engaging in lots of activities. And when we did our first recruit for this Hallmark uh, community called the Hallmark Idea Exchange, it was uh, 197 stay-at-home moms and three stay-at-home dads. Um, the thing that was extraordinary was within the first 24 hours, almost everyone in that community was online. The consumers could not believe that Hallmark actually wanted their opinion. And Hallmark started hearing things from these you know, parents who were online talking with each other that they had just never heard before. And we knew that there was something really special in what was going on and we kind of took it from there. So I think we were capitalizing on the internet. We really, really believed that we could build the kind of software that would engage people, but we had a lot of help from our early clients. That's great. So again, there's so many takeaways. And, and by the way, share quickly the story about what you did for the lunchroom of the cafe. Miss, Miss, I love the Red Sox. Oh, you mean at, at our corporate headquarters? Yes. Yeah. You know, when we were at, at, there were a couple of years there, uh, particularly 2006, seven, eight, when we were doubling in size every year. And uh, we finally bit the bullet, 
you know, got about 40,000 square feet at that point in time uh, in Office Park right outside of Austin. And the architects came in to meet with me as the CEO and said, okay, tell us a little bit about the space that you want. I said, you know, I got to tell you, I'm not really great at design, but you've got a team here that knows what they're doing. Um, So listen to my team. I said, I only care about two things. Number one, I don't want it to be quiet in the office. So I care about the acoustics. And the other thing is, I was thinking maybe we could make our cafeteria look like Fenway Park. And um, they eventually did that. I mean, we built this room, we painted everything. Um, you know, Benj- there is actually a paint color called Benjamin Moore Fenway Green. Uh, if you've been in Fenway Park and you've seen pictures of it, they have a big kind of man-made analog scoreboard. We replicated that scoreboard and kind of... Um, crowdsource, you know, which game we wanted to be on the scoreboard at the time and what that meant for our culture. I mean, it really created kind of a special room. And it was great because um, it ended up being the kind of place that everybody in Boston used for events. So it made us seem like at the time, um, at the time we were probably, I don't know, a 10, 20, $30 million company or whatever, but people in Boston thought we were this major player because they were always over at our offices using our facilities. And people used to say to me, Diane, I've been in Fenway Park a million times, but I don't know anything about what you do. It was really a lot of fun. And then when we moved to a much bigger space in 2010, uh, we built a much more professional version of Fenway Park. And uh, it's still there today. It's awesome. It's awesome. So we're going to stay with Communispace slash C-Space. I mean, look, you've done you did so much. You founded the company. You took it from an idea to reality. You had hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of staff there. You had tens of millions of dollars of revenue. You had probably all, probably 90% of the fortune, 200 as clients. I mean, there's so much that you did there. That's not what I actually want to talk about. What I want to talk about is today is the day that you get a do-over. You went to the left when you should have gone to the right. Is there anything that jumps out at you right now that you would have done a little bit different? Hmm. Well, I mean, I made a zillion mistakes. I will say that, you know, I think some of my best moves and worst moves were in hiring. I mean, I hired some of the most extraordinary people that I've ever worked with. And I also made some major hiring mistakes that just you know, you hire a senior person in a role and they're not the right person, they can kind of take you back a year or two. I mean, it's just all that stuff about hire slow, fire fast or whatever is is so true. So I made a huge number of people mistakes. I think for a while, we got so enamored of how many great brands we had as clients that getting the new shiny client was way more important just in terms of the of the recognition that people got than actually doing great work for existing clients and we kind of stopped that around 2006 i think and built a business model where what we knew was that the key to success was uh, it was a subscription model so getting renewals from existing clients and getting expanded business within those accounts. And it was a breakthrough for us. That didn't mean we didn't care about getting new business, but there was nothing 
more important and more gratifying and, you know, better from a compensation point of view for our people than doing more and more and better and better, you know, with existing clients. The good thing about business these days is that everything is moving so fast that you can kind of stop in your tracks and say, whoa, why are we doing that? That's great. You know, it's interesting. um, You started with, I made a lot of mistakes and I had a lot of luck because that's actually how I tend to answer the question as well. So it's it's interesting to hear that from you. Um, Look, most people, including myself, can only dream about going to the B school, right? Everybody taught, oh, the B school is the best and the brightest. But you went to Harvard. You got your MBA there. I've been very fortunate because when I was with Omnicom, uh, they had a senior management program, SMP, and it was taught by all Harvard Business School professors. So I had the likes of Len Schlesinger and Dave Maester and, and just a number of other folks that were just amazing. And I was shocked because I thought these professors were going to be very stuffy. Um, and, and, and they were one inch away from all being professional comedians. And I thought I nailed, it was all case studies. And I had thought I walked in there and nailed a case study. And then they would kind of unveil the end result and connect the dots. And it just made me feel how foolish and how stupid I was that I didn't see what they saw. But you went through it. What are some of the misconceptions that most people have? Because look, there's only a small percentage of the, of, the, of the world that gets to go to Harvard Business School. And you did that. I think the misconception about Harvard Business School is that it's all about the content. You know, yes, you go to HBS and you learn how to read income statements and you begin to understand production lines and you learn about the marketing mix and, and so on and so forth. Uh, and the quality of the instruction is fantastic. But the, the big benefit to me of the two-year experience that you have is just the community that you build. You can see that community is a big <laughs> factor in my life. You go through a shared experience, which is challenging and illuminating and very scary, particularly in the first year where all of what you used to think about yourself as a confident, smart, ambitious person gets called into question on a day-to-day basis because it's so intimidating. Let me ask you a quick follow-up to that because I think there's an interesting point there. When you say the fear, was the fear the content or was the scary part also the students or is it yes? Well, it's yes. I mean, what are you scared of? You're scared that you're going to get called on and you're going to say something stupid. You're scared that your colleagues who are sitting in the room with you will think you're not worthy of sitting in that seat. You look around the room and say, oh my gosh, I can see, I see one person in this group of 80 who I think is probably not as good at this as I am, but everybody else is so extraordinary that it's just scary. So I think the misconceptions are that it's all about the content. I think it's about the community and I think it's a transformational experience in that it kind of takes you through this process of trying to understand who you really are, you know, and, and what's possible. And, you know, as a result, 
you get really disciplined. And if you can get through it, you know, it makes you feel pretty confident, really, you know, just like any other transformational program really kind of changes the way that you think. Oh, that's great. Switching gears for a second, you know, we've got, we're involved in a pandemic with COVID-19. Um, by the time this airs, uh, it'll be interesting to see where we are in the whole process. Um, but being on nine boards, Diane, I know each of the boards is probably a little different, but I'm sure that there are some similarities some comments that you're saying to each of them in terms of, look, to manage your business, to manage the enterprise, to get to the other side of this, you've got to do blank, blank, and blank. Is there three or four things that you could share that people should be looking at? Because most of the listeners are CEOs and C-level here. Sure. Um, you know, I'm, I'm not sure there are really common things. I will tell you that uh, with the organizations that I'm involved in, they are either they're very often at extremes. Some are really, really in trouble um, because the large proportion of what they did in their business required people to actually come together. Uh, others have an enormous opportunity because it might be a tech company uh, whose technology is actually being used more now that people are alone. So some of it is just how do you take advantage of the opportunity or how do you literally kind of rethink uh, everything about your business to kind of get through all of this? You know, the common themes are, I, I think one is just viability. Um, you know, most organizations really need to take a look at their cash flow and make sure that they're going to be able to stay in business through all of this. I think that's one thing that we're talking a lot, obviously, with startups, that's really, really critical. But even large organizations are looking at what's going on with their cash and calling their bankers and, you know, figuring out how they're going to raise money, et cetera. You know, doing some longer term planning and thinking. I mean, this is such a juicy area for your listeners who are in market research, but I think we do not know how the world is going to be different when we come out of this. And I, what, what that really means is this is March, you know, a year, year and a half from now, you know, we have a vaccine, people are feeling a little safer, you know, what's really going on? Will we be more empathetic as a society? And what are the implications of that for our business? Will people be more emotional. I mean, there's a, of course, I come from more of the qualitative side of research. I think really understanding people's emotions and how they're thinking about their lives and everything uh, could be really different. So I think a lot of that is just starting to do some thinking, not only about how to get through all of this, but what work and life and conversation and, you know, and, and real enterprise will be like on the other end of this. The third thing, I guess, is just about people. And I think most organizations are doing a really good job just communicating with their stakeholders, whether it's um, shareholders for a public company, customers, employees. Companies are doing a really nice job communicating um, I just got off a board call where what we were talking about was this is a company that's in New York 
And we're worried that, you know, what happens if 25% of their employee base gets sick? Um, it sounds like if somebody's sick, they're completely, let's assume that people are going to survive this. If somebody is sick, they're still out of commission for two or three weeks. And so what does that mean for capacity? And before everybody starts laying people off, do we need to have some excess capacity in case some proportion of our organization actually ends up being out of commission, lying in bed, coughing, et cetera? I mean, I know that sounds awful, but that's kind of how we're thinking about it. So capacity planning is really, really tricky uh, given all the uncertainty that everyone has. Yeah, I think there's some really, really good takeaways. You know, it's interesting. Um, I know you're in Florida right now. And about six months ago, I did, I was visiting my mom and I did a, I was curious and did like a little research study by myself. I held the door open for 10 people in Boca Raton. And how many people said, thank you? How many people looked at me and said, thank you, Diane, if you had to guess? Oh my gosh. Out of the 10 people, I'd say, I don't know, nine. No, three. <gasps> You're kidding. No, no. They all looked at me like, like, what are you doing? Like, why are you doing that for me? And yesterday I was walking around in, in Walmart and I, this, this lady who may have been, I don't know, I don't know how old she was, maybe 65 or something like that, looked at me and she said, you look a little lost. Is there something? And she didn't work there. Can I help you find an item? And I said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I'm looking for some sanitizer soap. And she said, it's over here. It's in this aisle over here, which I thought was really, really nice. So I, I believe like you do that when we get to the other side of this, society is going to be much more empathetic. I think it's going to be, it's going to teach um, all of our companies how to be a little bit more efficient, how to be a little bit more aware of costs, a little tighter control. And I, and I just think there is a lot of takeaways for that, for sure. So um, I, I think I echo a lot of what your points are. So I'm going to make you a promise when we get to the other side of this, because I have been, I have had the pleasure of sitting next to you at a baseball game right behind yeah. home plate. Well, once the Rangers start going, there's an invite from me to you, to our new seats, and our brand new stadium where it's uh, 71 degrees inside. We have a private access to a club uh, for all the food and drink you want. You can have that in the seats, eat Cracker Jacks, whatever you want. So we're going to do that. So, Diane, lots of takeaways. Thanks again. You've been listening to Diane Hessen. This is the On The Mark podcast. My name is Merrill Dubrow, and have an amazing day. Bye, everybody.